Welcome to Your Province, Your Premier. Heard on QR Calgary and in Edmonton on 630 Chet. I'm Wayne Nelson, your host and moderator. And if you have a question, a concern, something on your mind for the Premier, you can phone or text. A big reminder, please, please keep those questions or texts as short as possible. All right, Premier Smith is ready and waiting to hear from you today. Those numbers, 403-974-8255 in Calgary, 780-496-0063 in Edmonton. Premier Smith, welcome to your province, your premier. Hi, Wayne. So nice to talk to you again. Yes, well, it's been a couple of weeks. Last week's show, of course, preempted because of Remembrance Day programming. But we're back, and there is no shortage of topics to talk about today. A few that I'd like to try to get to, and I'm sure our listeners are going to weigh in throughout the show as well. Uh, Finance Minister Nate Horner's comments this week about expected challenges for the next budget. The Manning Report on Alberta's COVID-19 response. The restructuring of Alberta Health. A new report on Alberta methane emissions. Amazon's wind farm near Vulcan and some positive news for our text uh, tech sector. Now, let's start with financing, if we could. The increased cost of debt servicing. Our fortunes are still tied to the roller coaster of oil prices. Finance Minister Horner has said the refinancing costs will be huge. How huge? Can you give me a number? And can Albertans expect any help from the province, individuals or business, or is that now gone by the wayside? Well, let's talk about the amount of debt that was racked up uh, starting years ago, uh, accelerated during the NDP period. And then we, uh, in the first couple of years of the, the UCP government, we had to get things under control, which we did. We were very proud in our last two years to be able to, to show that we had surpluses. And we're going to continue doing that. But the upshot is last year, we be, they made a $13 billion debt repayment. And the reason we did that is if we hadn't, we would have been growing pretty close to over $100 billion in debt. So we're now at $79 billion in debt. That's a big number. And when that debt comes up for renewal, if you don't have the money, you have to roll it over at today's interest rates. So we have a certain amount of debt coming up for renewal. Instead of it being sort of in the 2% range, I think it's in the 4% range that doubles interest payments. And so we are going to to need to work very hard to make sure that we continue to be on a, a path of permanent debt reduction so that we can see line of sight to being debt-free again. As part of the reason we put our fiscal framework in place, we're limiting year-over-year spending increases in operations. When we realize surpluses, half have to go to debt repayment. And I hope people understand how important that is now because I don't want to be spending a bunch of money on interest payments. I would rather be spending that money on things that people care about. Do we have a number on that, uh, Premier Smith, on what that debt resurfacing cost is going to be? Well, it'll be double what it is on that share of debt. So I, I think that we have somewhere in the order of uh, 10 billion coming due. So if we, uh, so so it'll double that that portion. I think we'll have to wait until uh, we see the projections coming out uh, on our next budget update. It'll it'll be pretty clear there. But I think we're we're now inching towards. Um, again, I'm just uh, speaking based on on things that I've seen. I think we're inching towards three billion dollars in interest payments on the amount of debt that we have. So when you think you've got $80 billion worth of debt, if you have to finance all of that at these higher rates of 4%, that's that's kind of where you end up. And so that's what the reason why we're so committed to reducing the debt, because I, I don't think that's what Albertans want their money spent on. All right. Now, I, I think on previous shows, you had mentioned that the uh, provincial fuel tax on gasoline and diesel uh, will be reinstated in light of uh, the uh, extended or, or, or greater uh, debt servicing. Is that still a reality for the province? We have a program in place that when oil prices are low, uh, that 
acts as an automatic way of bringing down your the, the price that you pay on gasoline and diesel. When oil prices are high, we're getting the extra revenue, so we use that to be able to offset the tax. So we've got a sliding scale. I believe that once oil gets to above $85, that's when we end up with the, the full fuel tax reprieve. And then um, it, it scales down after that. So oil's trading about $75 right now. Uh, we would normally have the fuel tax on. We felt it was important for affordability reasons to extend that fuel tax reprieve for an extra six months. And so uh, in the new year, if these prices continue to be moderate like this, we, we will be bringing the fuel tax back, yes. But we will still be paying the lowest rates in the entire country. Keep in mind, in uh, British Columbia, they're about 60 cents per litre higher and I think our fuel tax is in the order of nine cents when it's fully phased in. And so with the lower prices, we uh, we hope to be able to continue to have uh, have the lowest prices in the country. All right. The long-awaited Manning report on Alberta's COVID-19 response released this week, 90-some recommendations. Overall, I guess it calls for a better balance between health and rights during future emergencies. Now, there's been some controversy uh, after the release of the report over recommendations to have politicians, not medical officials, have the final say on public health measures and that politicians would then have to justify in court the need for public health measures before they're brought into effect. Some say that could waste precious time when response time could be critically important. Your response, what's, what's next and when? Well, that's not how it will work. It'll, it'll work a lot more. I mean, what they're suggesting is to use the same model that we use when we're managing forest fires or floods, which is you set up the Alberta Emergency Management Agency as the central coordinating body. You establish an Emergency Management Committee of Cabinet, and then all the relevant ministers hear presentations, um, we hear recommendations, and then we make a decision. That's what we did during the fire season. And I can tell you it was vitally important because there were certain spending decisions that needed to be set, made. There were We had to enact a, um, a fire guard protections in different communities. We had to make those decisions. We had to provide funding decisions. And we also had to make sure that we were in touch with the mayors of different towns to see how things were going. So there's a vitally important role for, for politicians to play in, in, in these in kind of environments. So I stand by that, that approach. What I think is really important to understand is that there, I remember Dr. Ari Jaffe was one of the uh, contributors to the, the Manning Report. And one of the things that he was saying very early on is that there's consequences to lockdowns. There are people who won't seek medical help. So you'll have undiagnosed cancers. You'll have undiagnosed heart disease. You'll have people dying of stroke. You'll have young people who are suffering from mental health, older people suffering from, from loneliness. You'll have an increase in addiction crisis. If people lose their jobs, that has long-term effect on their health. Those are the kind of decisions that need to be factored in. We can't just be so focused on one particular outcome that we forget about the health outcomes across the board. And that's what I've taken away from it. Right. And those are political decisions to balance that. We, we need to make sure that, that the politicians are fully aware of all of the consequences of their actions because politicians are ultimately held, held accountable. So as if they're accountable, they should be the final decision maker. 90-some recommendations, uh, I'm, I'm presuming that not all are going to be implemented, but I'm sure that uh, most, if not all will at least be discussed completely yeah we, we're going to have a process where we go through them line by line and figure out well, ones that that make sense to implement now ones that might be implemented partially and ones that we that uh, we think can't be implemented but i'm glad i'm just grateful for for preston for doing the work and i'm grateful the way he did it as well is that it, in the last crisis everybody it was brand new. People just uh, were, were doing the best that they could, trying to follow what others were doing in other jurisdictions. And 
now that we know the consequences of all of that, it just stands to reason that we would try to do things differently next time to avoid uh, the, the problems. And I, I think that's the spirit that he went into it with, is not trying to, to, to lay blame and uh, cast dispersions, but to say, hey, look, you know what? Some mistakes were made. Let's not make them next time. Okay. I want to talk about the Alberta Health Services uh, restructuring plan, but let's go to the phones first, if we could, Premier Smith. Uh, Jerry has been holding on uh, from Calgary. Go ahead, Jerry. You're on with Premier Smith. Yes, uh, Premier Smith. Uh, full disclosure, I'm a big fan, even back to your Wild Rose, Wild Rose days. And uh, I recently uh, had the pleasure of uh, visiting Spain. On that, I, I travel on a high-speed train from Barcelona to Madrid to uh, Seville, and it was an absolute pleasure. I don't know if you know this, but back in the 60s, my dad was a locomotive engineer, and there was a high-speed train between Calgary and Edmonton. It was called the Daylighter. Okay? And I, I looked at this train, and I said, whoa, why don't we advocate something like that? And I'm here to volunteer for a fact-finding uh, mission to, uh, to, to advocate for such a thing. Well, thank you, Jerry. I can tell you there's no bigger advocate of what you're saying than my own husband. So he's been talking about that for a long time. And and one of the things that I did when I went to Toronto was look at the Metrolinx model that they have. So Toronto was a about the same size Calgary was when they developed their first rail line for commuter rail between Oakville and Pickering. And from there, they've just uh, built out an amazing system. So you may have seen in the throne speech that I started talking about that is how do we get commuter rail in? How do we get that rail line built from Calgary Airport all the way to Banff. How do we get ultimately, and I call it an inevitable, the inevitable line that we're going to need between Calgary to Red Deer to Edmonton. So we're very much on the same page. I've got my transportation and economic corridors minister looking at about five different proposals that are all happening right now, have been proposed now to see how we can integrate them. And if we uh, if we were aspirational and know that at some point we're going to be double in population, we've got to build the infrastructure in place to be able to support that. So I'm right with you, Jerry. All right, we're going to take a break. I'm Wayne Nelson. I'll be back with Premier Danielle Smith. More of your calls and texts when we return on Your Province, Your Premier. If you're just joining us today, you are listening to Your Province, Your Premier. Heard Saturday mornings for listeners throughout Alberta and Edmonton on 630 Chad, right here in Calgary on QR Calgary. Let's get right to the phones. Ruth has been hanging on for about 25 minutes. That's before the show started. Ruth, go ahead. You're on with Premier Smith. Uh, yes. Uh, good morning, Premier. Hi, Ruth. I was very shocked to hear and read about Bill 8 soon to go to second reading in the legislature. Please explain your goals of Bill 8, which amends the Conflict of Interest Act, rules for the Ethics Commissioner, and gift limits. Sure, giving yeah. full powers to the Premier and Cabinet. Bill 8 sure. appears to be the first steps to the erosion of our democracy. Well, sure, I'd be happy to. So the I, I don't know when the limits came in, but they came in a, a number of years ago that it's a, a, a conflict of interest to attend any event that has a ticket price of over $200. So I can tell you what it means for me in practice as Premier, that when I get invited to speak at an event, 
that I'm not permitted to stay and have dinner um, because most events these days are four or five hundred dollars per item when they're when they're doing a charitable event. It means that when I go to the Stampede so that I can uh, meet the different business leaders at their different suites, I can only the ethics commissioner has said I can only stay in a suite for 20 minutes, and so it's impairing my ability to be able to to speak with and um, uh, with with individuals in that environment. I mean, Stampede is all about having bringing together business deals, and it, it really I got invited as well by Gary Bettman to enjoy. Um, the, uh, the 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 Heritage Classic, and I had to decline because I, I wasn't going to go to a hockey game if I was only able to spend 20 minutes at it. So those are the kinds of things. The other thing that I'd, has been raised with me is I receive, as a matter of protocol, um, often gifts. It's very common in First Nations communities to exchange gifts. And so if it's a work of art or if it's a skirt that is over the $200 limit, that then also initiates a complaint. And so these are just things that you have to do in the course of business. Nobody is is in this job so that they can receive gifts or go to these kinds of events. It's just part of, of what we have to do as politicians. The other part of it is that our, our staff aren't able to accompany us. And I can tell you, there's virtually nowhere that I can go for any length of time without having staff members with me to be able to do the follow-up. So we're trying to get a more reasonable limit than the $200. This is the mechanism to do it. I know we'll get feedback on what that limit should be. We welcome it, but uh, that's the process that we're going through. It's because it's, it's actually interfering in the ability of myself and our ministers to be able to do their work. All right, Don is calling in from Edmonton with a pension fund question. Go ahead, Don. You're on with Premier Smith. Hi, Danielle. Premier Smith, Wayne. Um, I had a quick comment. Um, last time I brought up uh, phase fuel separation, and I don't think most people understand what it is, but phase is spelled P-H-A-S-E, and then just put in ethanol. It works, ethanol works about 80% of the time in the fuel. It's the 10 to 20% of the time it doesn't work is when it destroys the engines and the carburetors and the fuel pumps and the injection system. But um, anyway... Um, you know that that Matt guy from publicly funded radio? He could have at least pretended that he liked you. Trudeau recently <laughs> said that. Uh, um, Look, I know, I know that it's not the job of polit- it's not the job of members of the media to to like me. It is their job to be able to ask me tough questions, so I don't mind it. Okay, so getting to the pension fund, Trudeau recent before he said budgets balance themselves, and then he recently said that he practiced his government's been practicing fiscal responsibility. Just the fact that he thinks that we should not take the pension fund out and move it to Alberta tells, and Christian Freeland as well, tells me that we're heading in the right direction. The thing is, where is the money going? That's what I don't understand. If you put in for 40 years, before you hit 60, your state gets $2,500. If the if CPP was paying 1200 or 1400 or 16 or maybe even 18 I wouldn't be complaining about moving it to Alberta but I don't know who's mismanaging the fund but uh, the money's got to be going somewhere and if you need somebody to uh, to do the edit the audit on the fund there's Catherine Austin Fitz out of the states she's the one that discovered there was 23 trillion dollars missing out of the US Treasury that nobody knew where it went so but it's not it's moving the pension fund isn't an emotional issue it's simple mathematics and what has to be done is see, do an audit and see where all the money is going because it just it just doesn't add up all right Don, 40, okay anyway okay i get to get there just i think premier smith gets to just uh premier smith uh, your comment your response sure sure i'd be happy to comment um, I, I would say that there's probably a misunderstanding about how our CPP system works. I'm going to try to explain it as simply as I can to get to what Don was asking. It's a pay-as-you-go system, which means that the people who are paying in today 
are paying for the people who are receiving today. I know people think that the pension kind of works like an RRSP, that you put your your contributions in, your employer put their contributions in, it gets invested in a fund under your name, and then it, it stays with you. That's not how it works. So when you think about where we find ourselves is that they changed the system back in 1993 to increase the premiums so that we were bringing in more money than we needed to pay for today's current recipients. And it's worked uh, because there's a lot of money that has then been overpaid into the fund that's gone on to be um, compounded in interest. And now there's about $600 billion or pretty close to it sitting in that fund. But the essence of the program is still the same. Our, uh, if you look at last year, our Alberta payers paid in $9 billion. Our Alberta seniors received $6 billion. So that means that every year, and it has been this case virtually from the beginning, every year, year after year, Alberta ratepayers are paying hundreds of millions, if not billions more than uh, we pay out in benefits. Those dollars are going into the CPP investment fund and then compounding. And it's the reason why we have done the calculation that we're entitled to 53%, because Albertans are the ones who are paying the lion's share of the over-contributions. That's why we're having this conversation. Now, the manner in which it's invested, you might have to go look that up yourself, Don. I've, I've taken a look myself. And there are some things that are in there that, that that I am a bit concerned about. I am a bit concerned that there's a large amount of private equity invested. Uh, um, that means like things like that are not liquid, so they're not traded on the publicly traded stock market. There's property that's in there. There's investments in China as well. And so um, it, it is fully disclosed where it is. But uh, the, 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 the base problem that we have is that Albertans continue to pay more than they receive. And then we have absolutely no say over how that money is invested. And that's uh, the reason why if it goes to a referendum, I would vote in favor, but it's not up to me. It's going to be up to Albertans. And Albertans haven't really given us a clear indication yet of whether they want us to go to a referendum. I think they want to know what the asset transfer would be. We calculated one number of $334 billion. Federal government's going to do their calculation and then uh, we'll be able to put it to the people so that we can have the full debate. All right. Angry Roberto has texted in saying, I'm getting $1,141 $1, at my CPP after taxes, 10%. Will I get more with a new Alberta pension plan? If I will, then I support the plan 100%. Also, make sure we will not pay taxes in the new Alberta pension plan. We uh, just are passing uh, pension legislation that either guarantee, that guarantees you will either get the same or more in benefits or the same or less in contributions. All of the money that gets transferred will be used towards the pension and it will be put to a referendum. So we, we still need to get what that final number is from the federal government so that we can put that to the people and let uh, people decide on uh, which what the balance would be. Do they want more premiums or do they want do you want less premiums or do they want more benefits? But we, we still have a little bit more work to do on that front. That's what we've already garnered from the feedback that we've received is they, they want to know what the number is. They want to know precisely what it would mean for contributions and precisely what it means for benefits. So we still have a bit more work to do on that. All right, Chris has texted in from Edmonton. Uh, this is also related to the APP. Uh, he said, you keep saying the panel is to see if people want a referendum, but Jim Dinning said we're going to a referendum uh, in the first panel night. What hard data will the panel show to prove Albertans want a referendum and not just your government? 
Well, we're looking at all at all aspects. I mean, not only the feedback that he's gotten on those calls, and he's had, I think, tens of thousands of people participating in the calls. I think it's normally ten to 12,000 a night. The emails that are coming into our offices, we're doing independent polling, we're watching public polling. I think we're, we're get, we'll, we'll get a sense of it once we have the, uh, the, the final numbers. We'll have to go out and do a little bit more uh, polling work, a little bit more consultation. But the initial feedback that we got is that people have unanswered questions. How much is the uh, amount of the transfer and what, what are some of the portability issues that they would be concerned about? And those are those are issues that I, if we, that we, we just need to get more more detail out. And so we're waiting on the federal government to come back with that. And then we'll uh, we'll make an assessment of, uh, of whether or not people want to move forward. I mean, people needed to have the information. I, from a due diligence point of view, I, I wanted to know. We now had the, the report. I think people needed to know. And if uh, Albertans decide that they want to stay with this system, knowing how stacked against us it is, then that will be their choice. Um, but but uh, I, I think people at least needed to know how unfair the system is to our Alberta seniors and our Alberta ratepayers. A couple of questions on the text line with regards to health care. Before I get to those, I want to put in my question uh, about health care uh, because it was restructured. You announced that last week. We got four main bodies. Uh, This week, some members of the executive team were announced to be no longer in their roles. I'm presuming there's going to be some severance packages paid out there. Now, this is not the first time the province has restructured AHS. About 30 years ago, as I recall, there were 17 different health regions. Those were reduced to nine in 2004, and then just one about four years after that. About half of our provincial budget goes to health care. I think it's around $42 billion, if I'm not mistaken. Yet critics say that this restructuring will not address the very real need for more frontline workers, the need for more hospital beds, there's no additional funding, and it's just shuffling around or even contributing to an already bloated bureaucracy. Your response. Well, no, no, and no, (laughs) because the whole purpose of this is to make sure that more dollars are getting to the front line. What I'm frustrated by is the layers and layers of managers, the the layers and, and layers of of, uh, of of different bureaucratic structures, be even between zones. I mean, I was given a an internal document a couple of years ago about the organizational chart for one zone in particular, and it was 40 pages long. And those are people who are not seeing patients. Those are people who are in bureaucratic positions. And that's the real problem with the system. If that's in one zone, what the heck is going on in all of the zones? There's five of them. So I don't feel like the integration that took place really uh, did address the issue of management. It kind of smooshed all of the different organizations together and then added additional management layers. So the process we're going through right now, and you saw with the uh, six senior executives taking their departure is uh, going to it's going to filter down all the way through the organization. And the sole purpose of it is to make sure more dollars are on the front line, more nurses are hired, more doctors are supported, more surgeries are done, more equipment is purchased in hospitals rather than have all of those dollars soaked up in the management layers. We're just beginning. It's about an 18 to 24 month process. And I'm really enthusiastic about but it. But you've got four separate uh, bodies which are each then going to require their own levels of bureaucracy. Isn't that well, contributing you need, to more? No, no, no. You need, you need managers. Okay. You need managers, but you don't need to have seven layers of managers in five different zones. I mean, I, th- I think this is the the issue, is that we, we have a, a structure where we've given money at the top 
filters down through managers and whatever is left over is is spent on the front line. We, we want to turn that model around. We want more decision making happening on the front line in each of the 106 facilities that AHS manages and start streamlining the decision making. So you, you do need to have uh, decision makers in that role, but you don't need to have thousands of people in management positions. And that, that process to make sure that we've got reasonable line of sight um, for making sure that a decision is made efficiently, that's going to take a little bit of time. But I can assure you, our objective is to have far fewer people in the management suite and far more people on the front line. All right. And getting to those text messages that uh, I said were, would relate to health services. Please ask how blowing up AHS will help with hospital capacity and ER wait times. Edmonton has not had a new hospital since the early 80s. Would the money spent on blowing up AHS not be better spent working on capacity? capacity spaces. Well, I don't agree with the way in which it's being characterized. I mean, AHS remains intact. AHS is our principal provider of 106 uh, hospital acute care services. They also have two arms of continuing care, which uh, will will which they will continue to operate, albeit with a different reporting structure. The the, the issue that we have found is that um, all roads have led to a hospital door. That's the real problem, is that if you don't have a robust primary care system where everybody has a family practitioner and your child gets sick, you go to a hospital. If you have a mental health or addiction issue um, and there isn't another place for you to go, you go to a hospital. If you're a person who's homeless and you end up with uh, frostbite and need to go uh, to, to a hospital, there's no place for you to convalesce. You have to stay in hospital. If you are in continuing care and there isn't a place for you to go in continuing care because the system isn't working efficiently, you stay in hospital. Hospital is the most expensive place for us to be treating patients, and it's not always the most appropriate place. We want AHS to deliver the very best acute care services, stabilize patients quickly, and then move them into a more appropriate facility, whether that's a continuing care or a recovery community or a mental health space, or keep them out of hospital in the first place because the first point of entry will be that everybody has a family practitioner. That's the reason why we need to have these different entities is because with AHS focusing on everything, they've essentially focused on, on, uh, on, on only acute care. It's costing a lot of money and it's not delivering the best patient care. So we're going to be changing that focus. All right, the second text message uh, regarding uh, health services. The consequences of lockdowns that Premier Smith was talking about uh, this is in regards to the Manning report, uh, sounds eerily similar to what our health care is right now. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I am worried that there were people, and I heard this as well from, uh, from doctors who were in emergency rooms, that through COVID, people were too afraid to go and get care or didn't miss, uh, missed out on care. And so when they turned up in hospital, they were sicker than they'd been before. And when you sh show up sicker, it uh, it's more complicated to treat. So these are the, so we are dealing, there's no question, the part of the pressure on the healthcare system is dealing with people who have problems that manifested during, during the two years where they didn't have accessible care. So we're, we're going to, make sure that we've got the resources there so people can get well and stay well and stay out of hospital and get on the and get on the mend but uh, i don't disagree with the observation made there all right one quick text message before we get back to the phones terry and red deer says please ask premier smith if she would remove autonomy from ahs remove autonomy from AHS. well i think what i want to see is i want ahs to have autonomy and i, I want them 
to focus on on acute care. And I, I, but here's what our obligation is as the entity that is using taxpayer dollars to fund them. Our job is to make sure that they are optimizing care, that they are using all of their operating rooms, that they are maximizing surgeries, that they are efficiently moving patients out of uh, acute care beds into continuing care, that they're not making um, ambulances wait for hours and hours as if they're an extension of the hospital um, waiting room, that we don't have hallway medicine. Those are the things that we as a, as a government need to monitor and make sure that it's happening at, at every facility. They, they can't continue the way they've been operating, shutting down rural hospitals on uh, on weekends or early, and so we're going to hold them to account on that. That's if you. So if we're taking, if that's what you mean by taking away their autonomy, uh, I I see it as giving them the autonomy to make the right decision. They are the principal provider of the vast majority of our health services. They've had the privilege of a monopoly, and we're just going to ask for better performance, and we're we're going to demand it. All right, back to the phones. And uh, Marianne from Calgary, you are on with Premier Danielle Smith. Go ahead. Hi, Premier Smith. Um, before my economics-related question, I have a quick social media question. Was it one grade in school that you skipped? <laughs> yeah, I was uh, I was a bit of a nerdy kid, so my older brother made us play. We played school when I was a kid, and he'd erase his, his work, and then I would end up doing his work. And so I got a little bit ahead. So in grade two, my, my teacher, Mrs. Nichols, yeah, she advanced me to grade three. So by the end, by the time I finished that school year, I was entering right into grade four. That's impressive. Um, my, uh, my economics-related question. Um, last month, the NDP held their convention. One of their resolutions was... Uh, to completely stop production of oil and gas. And another resolution was a, a large suite of social programs. So my question to you is, did you hear anything about how the NDP, if they completely shutter the oil and gas sector, how in the heck they plan to pay for the broad range of social programs that, that they're calling for? Well, I think you answered the question yourself. Um, I, I don't know, Wayne, if you can put her on pause because I keep getting feedback in my ear. Thank you so much for that, and thanks for the question. The um, uh, This has been the beauty of Alberta for so many years is that because we have a robust economy, growing economy, great tax revenues that come in from our wealth creators, uh, paying people to work, high-paying jobs, and that all the revenue that generates, it allows us to have the most generous and supportive pro social programs in the country. And that's ex and that's what I think Albertans want to see. If you start reducing your ability to generate that revenue, it's going to have that that automatic impact. It's going to reduce the amount that you're able to help people through through having great health care and education and social services. So I think that's a question for, um, for Ms. Notley to answer, because remember, the NDP in Alberta is totally integrated with their federal party. If you buy a membership in the Alberta NDP, you're automatically a member of the federal NDP. They're the, they're the same party. And so if that's the official view of the, uh, of, the, of the national body that they want to shut down the oil and gas industry, she's got a lot to answer for. DJ is phoning in from Rimby. Go ahead, DJ. You're on with Premier Danielle Smith. Oh, thank you so much. And good morning, Premier. Nice to talk to you. Um, Hi, DJ. I, I just wanted to say, um, and just listening to the comments that have come in, I am, I am really disappointed that we are focusing all these resources and attention and money on the Alberta Pension Plan. Can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. Um, good. When we've got a CPP that works, 
because there are so many other things that I would really like to see you take that money and not just the money, take your time and take all those resources and put them towards those things that are affecting me right here on the farm and us in these small towns every day. Things like I heard just this week our emergency department in Pinocchio has been shut down again, again, for a number of, you know, isolated times. So we don't have that. You know, I've got homeless people sleeping in the entryways to the bank. I've got, you know, seniors not able to afford the shingle shots because the government isn't covering them here in Alberta, but they cover them in other provinces. You know, the long, long wait for me to get my knee replacement. I have been on that list for the Red Deer Hospital for five years now, and I still can't get in to get my knee replacement. Rather than deal with this APP stuff, the pension plan works. We got something that works for the Canada. It works. It works. So leave it alone and spend the money on the things that affect me every day. And not just me. They affect my dad. He couldn't get into long-term care for months. Months. Because because you guys didn't have, you weren't spending the money on that kind of stuff. Like spend it on stuff that makes a difference to us. Not something that already works. Like, I'm just getting sick and tired of this. And we live in the country, and there's lots of us out here that are in the same boat. There, I said my piece. Like, <laughs> Thanks, I'm, just, I'm just tired of it. Quit this well, stuff with look, the I, APP. I, right. I guess the way I look Thanks, at it is Albertans are spending $3 billion more than they need to. That's going to subsidize the rest of the country. And... And $3 billion being put back into people's pockets if we were to reduce their premiums for payroll taxes would make a huge difference here. Um, so that's the way I look at it, is that we can do both. We can be concerned about the amount of dollars that are leaving this province that go and subsidize the rest of the country with no appreciation, quite frankly. We never get any appreciation for the, the support that we give others. And we can also make sure that the, the remaining tax revenues that we, we do generate are getting the best value. So I, uh, I spend a lot of time on all of those issues that, um, that DJ was talking about. It's part of the reason why I made health reform my number one agenda item when I first got elected. Started with putting in an official administrator to see if we could make some changes in the current structure. And after a year of watching it, we made some improvements, but not nearly enough. And it's why we've had to, to take a, a deeper approach. And I assure you, all of those issues, making sure people have a family doctor, making sure that we are reducing the wait list, for people awaiting critical um, services, making sure that we are getting people efficiently into supportive living and long-term care. Those, those are our top of mind issues for the government. We started on it now. I mean, for 15 years, we've been watching the system get worse and worse and perform in a way that is, does not meet our expectations. And nobody wanted to do anything about it. I, I am, and I will. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to have a conversation a year from now where, where things are so much better. Looks like healthcare is a hot topic uh, today on the show, uh, judging from the number, the overwhelming number of text messages I'm getting on both the uh, Ched and Calgary lines, uh, phone calls as well. Arm Swar is uh, texting in from Ched. He said, if you have less managers, the managers you do have will have more responsibilities, which means you'll then have to pay more because it's high pressure. Where are you going to find these people? And he followed that up, said, also, you're assuming that people in the front line want to make a decision. That's not always the case. It takes a certain personality and willingness for people to lead. Most of the time, people want to be told what to do. Well, if you're running a facility, a hospital, 
Um, you, you better be a decision maker. That's what I would say. Maybe we don't have the right people in those decision making roles at each hospital. But here's the way it should work is that uh, you need to have a, a hospital with an administrator who's getting advice from good local people who are able to say what the priorities of that hospital should be because it's going to be in different in different communities. Some communities are, are going to need to build out their obstetrics so that they can deliver more babies. Others are going to have to build out their knee and hip replacements. Others are going to have to be able to do general surgery. And that is the kind of decision that should be made at the local level based on what the needs of the community are. That shouldn't be made in some faraway place in Edmonton with people who don't understand the local conditions. But then on top of that, then you need to have all of those individual managers coordinating to make sure that every person in a, in a, in a, in a region has access to, to services. And so what I would see is that Medicine Hat, Lethbridge, Red Deer, Grand Prairie, Fort Mac, and then, of course, Calgary and Edmonton. Each of those would be a zone where most people should be able to get most services at the regional hospital and uh, get additional services in the auxiliary besides. So you need to be able to have coordination at the regional level. And then at the central level, decisions that are, are made should be about procurement. Um, a, one single central board can get better prices on procuring medical equipment and procuring the, uh, the pharmaceuticals that are needed, doing contracts, IT, those kinds of things. So there, every, every level needs to have its own decision-making authority. The, the problem that we've seen is all of those decisions have been made at the central level, which means delays and delays and delays. If you, if you land on somebody's desk too many decisions, you're going to be delaying months or years before you get an answer. So I'm very excited about being able to empower local people who are already there to be able to make more of those decisions with community input. I think that's what people are asking for, and that's what we're going to deliver. All right, time for our final break. I'm Wayne Nelson with Premier Danielle Smith, and we'll be back to wrap things up in our final segment on Your Province, Your Premier. Wayne Nelson back with you on Your Province, Your Premier. Your opportunity to speak with Premier Danielle Smith one-on-one. -on -one. If you've got a specific question you'd like answered, you know what the numbers are. We've got an exceptionally busy show today. I'm not going to be able to get to even a portion of all the text messages we're getting on both the Ched and the QR lines and not to mention the phone lines. so we're going to go right to those phones uh, David has been hanging on for probably almost half the show David calling in from Onaway go ahead David you're on with Premier Smith Thanks David. Danielle you and I spoke some months ago about employer benefits actually belonging to the employee because they can lose them in, in the case of a bankruptcy or something like that. And you agreed with me. They should, something should be done. So I have two questions. One is, has anything been done on that? And the second one is, bearing that in mind, why has the government seized control of my lap pension and the nurse's pension and then taken away the control we had over AIMCO about where it was invested, because I wouldn't trust you, I wouldn't trust a politician to get involved in my pension anymore. Thank you. Thanks, David. Well, benefits covers a, a lot of ground, so let me just start with uh, one of the things that people do lose when they when they leave an employer is uh, the the health and dental benefits. So we do have Alberta Blue Cross. It's called non-group coverage, which is kind of a, a, an inaccessible name. I've been talking to them about how, how they might be able to make people um, more understand that this program is available. And so I would just encourage anyone who finds themselves in that situation to know that there is a program out there that you can uh, that you can uh, self-fund in the event that you you don't have an employer funding your benefits. As for uh, AIMCO, 
and our approach on on managing pensions. Those decisions predated me, and I, uh, in truth, I, I haven't had a chance to to take a second look at at how that is going. I know it was very controversial at the time. There are a lot of people who are frustrated. I've got a, a new finance minister, and I'll I'll seek his advice on that. Where uh, we have a a leadership change that's happening at AIMCO. The uh, current chair is going to be leaving at the end of the year. So we'll be making some changes to that board and, and hopefully restoring confidence in people because it's a, it's important. Uh, they manage $170 billion worth of assets on our behalf, including our Heritage Savings Trust Fund. And I want I want uh, everyone in those uh, pension plans to know that their their money is taken care of. So if, a, if, we, if we have a, some shortfall in that regard, um, I'll, I'll get Nate Horner working on fixing it. All right, text message now from Calgary. I understand projections say Alberta's population will grow by a million in the next five years. Are there plans to expand a very crowded Highway 2 to six to eight lanes from Calgary to Edmonton? The current four lanes were last updated back in the 60s. Also, please resurface the north half of Deerfoot. It's terrible with holes and ruts. Well, I know Deerfoot is well underway because as soon as the ring road is finished, which is coming up very soon, that road, I believe, becomes a uh, a road network for Calgary. And we want to make sure it's handed over in the best condition possible. So there's a, a massive undertaking going on right now to make sure that Deerfoot is in great shape before it gets handed over. And I'll, I'll make sure that that uh, resurfacing is is on the, the radar screen of my Transportation Economic Corridors Minister, Devin Dreeshen. As for Highway 2, I, I, I don't disagree that at some point, if we don't have another way of getting between Calgary Red Deer and Edmonton, that there is going to be a need for major expansion of of highways. What I'm uh, hoping we can all agree to is that we should be looking at how we might be able to use rail as an alternative, uh, getting us between those major centers. Uh, Maybe we'll need to do both eventually. Where you would have uh, more more highway roads or, or more uh, lanes on the on the highway, but I I think that there I think we're getting to a size and population in both Calgary and Edmonton in a growing central re- region where where rail makes sense, uh, like our earlier caller said. So that's that's the the priority project, and I'll uh, I'll talk to the minister to see if there would be any plans or or what their forecast has for when we might need to upgrade the roads but it's not on it's not on the uh, on the plan at the moment all right on the text line uh, premier smith has said absolutely nothing about education why are we only hearing about health care and the pension plan when public education is so underfunded there is no prep time for teachers they implemented a new curriculum and the teachers have been given no pd days to learn it my son teaches grade five their principal told them they have no money available for paper so they're not allowed to use any paper they're working tons of overtime due to lack of funding in the classroom and overcrowding. What are you planning to do to help with our public education? It is literally crumbling. Not everyone can afford private. It's every child's right to a good education. We have had targeted funding that has gone to a number of things because I think education assistants are very important to be that extra hands on uh, on deck in, in every classroom, especially as we have more complexity and, and higher and higher needs. And so we have given spe- uh, sort of a dedicated additional amount that is intended to, to provide some of that support. We, we also know that for a period of time, we were declining in enrollment. That was the, the big issue that we were facing is that we were not growing at the rate we had 13 quarters of out-migration. And as a result, we had to create a funding model that would stabilize funding for those uh, boards that were losing enrollment. So that was the initial uh, reason why we changed the funding model. Well, now we're in a situation where we're growing in leaps and bounds. So our education minister has already brought it forward to cabinet that we may need to that we need to make some adjustments to make sure that we're keeping up with growth. So it is um, a budget process that we have to go through. 
um, the uh, the budget comes down in in February. But that's just how quickly things have turned around. I mean, you have to remember we we weren't um, we we've been able to have incredible success in attracting people to our province in the last year. We're growing at a rate that is almost unprecedented. I don't think we've seen these numbers since 1981. And it is our job to make sure that we're managing and keeping up with growth. There are a little bit of pressure points that happen from time to time as we're working through that process. But I can tell you my education minister, Demetrios Nikolaitis, he's already begun the conversation and, and we hope we can we can fix that in the upcoming budget. All right, one related uh, education text. Brian says, I'm a teacher who is now required by law to prove I'm innocent of everything by getting a new police check, including fingerprints, or lose my career after 20 years. How is this not contrary to innocent until proven guilty? Further, the vulnerable sector check could cost a teacher without any crimes at all being involved. Hmm. I'll, I'll look into that. I didn't realize that that was being done across the board. I, su I suppose it probably came as a result of that terrible story that we heard a few years ago of a teacher that was um, went undisciplined for over 20 years, even though he there were multiple stories of him abusing his his uh, his his young charges. And so we've taken the discipline process away from the teachers union as a result of that, because we need to have an independent process. And it, it could be that this came in as a as a result of of some of these instances that we've heard. We we have to make sure that we're protecting kids, and and so if there's a there's a way that we can streamline that, I'd be open to doing that. But I, I can tell you that it's pretty standard practice if you want to work with young people in the private sector that you've got to go and get the RCMP assessment to make sure that you're clear and safe to work with kids. So I I think that's also an expectation that we're trying to balance. Premier Smith, there are so many topics, so many text messages and phone calls that we didn't get to today. You're going to have to come back. I will. Why don't we do this again in a couple of weeks? Yeah, is it a couple of weeks? It's next weekend, is it not? Anyways. Oh, it is next week. Yeah, Fantastic. Let's do it are. again next week. We'll, well talk to you, you then. Thank Wayne. you for joining us. You bet. You bet. Premier Danielle Smith will be back for Your Province, Your Premier next Saturday. I'm Wayne Nelson. You've been listening to Your Province, Your Premier.